You know, it's often been said that there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if you ever find one, don't join it because you'll ruin it. I think that's very true because a church is made up of human beings who are imperfect. I don't think anyone in this room would say, I am now perfect. I think we recognize that we are all imperfect. You get a whole bunch of us together and you have a mess. You have a church, a group of imperfect Christians growing. Some people use those imperfections as excuses. They say, oh, well, there's so many hypocrites in the church. Well, that may be true. I always say there's room for one more. Come on in. Some people see the flaws of others and they say, that is excuse enough for me to not attend church or become involved in any church. And so they remain afar off. One clever clergyman, using that same logic, gave a list of reasons why he does not go anymore to athletic events. He said, first of all, every time I went, they asked me for money. Secondly, people with whom I had to sit didn't seem very friendly. Third, the seats were too hard and uncomfortable. The coach never came to call on me personally. The referee made a decision with which I could not agree. Some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. The band played some numbers that I had never heard before. Some of those games are scheduled when I want to do other things. Well, my parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Since I read a book on sports, I feel like I know more than the coaches anyway. And finally, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. Some people think that way about church. The church is not a place or an event. It is you. It's not something you go to. It's something that you are. And the church at Thessalonica was a young, growing church, on the move, growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. They were not static. They were dynamic. They were not perfect. I don't want you to paint a picture in your mind or get the idea that these people were flawless. In fact, there are many times in this letter where Paul gently corrects some of the things that were going wrong in their personal lives that he had heard about. But for the most part... They were young, vibrant, zealous, as we already said. In fact, uh, verse 3 perfectly describes them. Let's go ahead and read verses 2, 3, and 4. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. What is interesting about this group of people is that they were being persecuted. In fact, as soon as the church started, there was persecution all around them. And after reading Acts chapter 17 like we did last week, seeing that as soon as they received Jesus Christ, the world hated them, we would tend to think, boy, they must be on wobbly, unstable ground. Perhaps they're about to go under. On the contrary, as you read Paul's letter, he is confident that they will stand strong and continue to grow. That's because Paul the Apostle viewed the church as it really is. It is not a human institution. It is a divine institution. God started it. 
Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There have been times throughout church history where the church seems to grow and then wane and then grow and then become corrupt. And there have been critics on the sidelines who say, Ah, look at that church. The church of Jesus Christ, the movement called Christianity, is about to fold altogether. But they underestimate the power of God, that He always has a remnant. And He's able to resurrect that which is dying. We're going to read, as we already did, and look at these three verses, 2, 3, and 4. Just a couple short thoughts, but packed with powerful lessons for us. And first of all, in verse 2, concerning these uh, Thessalonian believers, they were prayed for. That's what we're going to look at first. Secondly, they were picked by God in verse 4. And finally, their faith was productive, as we see in verse 3. Notice in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all. He must have been from the south. <laughs> Making mention of you in our prayers. This group of people was cherished by the apostle. He calls them beloved brethren, down in verse 4. A term that Paul the Apostle uses 60 times of Christians in the New Testament. Brothers. That's a great way to refer to other Christians. Brother. What is unique about Paul using this term is that his background was a religious Pharisee. He was at one point a very narrow-minded religious Jewish leader who believed that the only saved people were Jewish people. They were the chosen people. Now he broadens out the idea that whoever calls upon the name of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is his brother. He says, we remember, in verse 3, remembering without ceasing. Paul loved them and kept them close to his heart by keeping them continually in his mind. And as he thought about them, first of all, he was thankful for them. Secondly, he interceded for them, all under the cover of he was praying for them. He says, we give thanks. One thing you notice about the Apostle Paul, he was not a pessimist. What I mean by that is in almost every letter, no matter how bad the group was that he was writing to, he has something to give thanks for. He must have believed that giving thanks was high upon the list of importance for Christians to do. He wrote to the Philippians. He gave thanks at the beginning of that letter. And then toward the end he wrote, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. To the Colossians, he said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to his name. There are some people who always see the downside, the negative side. Uh, you show them a white piece of cloth and they'll find the black dot on it. Show them the church, they will pick out the flaws in it. They'll find the people who aren't doing what they should be doing instead of looking at those who are. Paul said, We give thanks to God for you all. Notice what he is thankful for. He's thankful for them personally. And he tells them that. He expresses to them that he thanks God for them. Now when was the last time you did that with someone? You just said, you know, I just want you to know I thank God for you. 
You personally mean a lot to me, and I thank the Lord for you. You ought to begin with those who are the closest to you, like your spouse, your children. You might shock them, actually. I thank the Lord for you. There was a New York newspaper who recorded hundreds, thousands of letters before Christmas begging Santa for their favorite gift. After Christmas, the New York newspaper said, we received one letter of thanks from a kid. Like General George Patton, who said, I spent 35 years as a general serving the United States. And after 35 years of service, I had only one soldier approach me after that time and thank me. Paul said, we give thanks all the time, every time we remember you. There is something edifying, uplifting, about genuine personal encouragement and thanksgiving. It lifts a person. I get cards and letters from people who listen to the radio broadcast or from this church just saying, we just want to say we thank the Lord for you. Those are the letters I keep. Keep them in a drawer, and if I ever face a time of discouragement, I want to pull them out, even as these Thessalonian believers must have pulled out Paul's letter from time to time to be reminded that this apostle was thankful for them. What this boils down to, folks, is personal relationships, the very thing that many of us are weak in. You know, if you stripped everything away from life, all the things that we spend time pursuing, things, pursuits, endeavors, new projects, if you took everything away from life, boiled it down to its basics, I've often said you have two things, a relationship with God and relationships with people. And those are either good relationships or they are bad relationships. And often it's those things, the relationships with people that we are the most lacking. And unfortunately, people don't really discover this because we're so busy having our attention distracted by things that people take back seat. And we usually don't realize it until a funeral occurs. Then the guilt sets in. If only I would have said to that person before they left, the words that were on my heart, I love you. If only I would have spent more time nurturing that relationship, it would have been so valuable. I was with uh, my parents for part of this week, the beginning Monday and Tuesday of this week, and uh, they're getting up there in years. My dad is going to be 79 coming up. And uh, we sat around and I said, where's that old box of pictures of all of us growing up? locks of our hair, little newspaper articles, little things that we did. And I took out the box, spent the entire afternoon and evening looking at pictures. Found pictures of my mom and dad before they were married, while they were dating. I mean, this is way back when. And I kindled so many memories of the things that we had done together. Before I left, my dad grabbed my hand and he said, you have no idea how much this meant to us to rekindle those memories and to realize how rich we are, all the things that we have done together as a family. And no matter what happens, we're rich in all of those experiences. And there was that element of gratitude and thanksgiving because of the relationship that was there. Then he says in the same verse, making mention of you in our prayers. What that tells me is that Paul didn't stop with telling the Thessalonian believers that he was thankful for them. He talked to God about them. He prayed for them. Happy is the person 
who has a network of friends praying for them, going between them and the Lord, as Ezekiel called it, standing in the gap and praying for you before God. Again, this week, I took a friend of mine's appointment book for 1994. There's all the months of the year laid out and some of the things he's planning. And while he was away from his appointment book, I took the liberty to pencil in uh, every month, pray for Skip. <laughs> Just indiscriminately at different weeks. I forget how he can erase them, but he'll see these things in January and February and July. And I put pray for Skip. Don't forget to pray for Skip today. Skip really needs your prayers. That'll be a reminder of him because I'll be able to use those prayers this year. Why is it that some have unusual strength in their walk with the Lord? I think it's because they have a network of people supporting them in prayer. Charles Spurgeon, who had an incredibly large work, thousands of people came to his church in London. He was known all over England, all over Europe and America as the Prince of Preachers. Somebody came to visit him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, what is the strength of your great work? He said, let me show you the strength of this great work. Took them to the basement of the church, showed them a group of people praying before and during the service. He said, there it is. In fact, he spoke to his congregation and he said in one of his sermons, let me have your prayers and I can do anything. Let me be without people's prayers and I can do nothing. You've ever felt that way? You ever felt, boy, I wish I knew right now that people were praying for me. I wish I had that network, that group of people lifting me up before the Lord. I was looking uh, through my wife's diary, her prayer diary, her prayer journal from 1981. And uh, Tuesday, April 21st, she wrote these words, Lord, if there was ever a time that I needed intercessors, it's now. I pray that you would lay Skip and myself upon the hearts of our friends. I thought about it, April 21st, that was right after I asked her to marry me. And I thought, what must be going through her mind? Lord, give me strength, I'm marrying this creep. I really need your power and ability just to make it through. I have no idea. Turn a couple pages to the right. Look at 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And as we read it, take it to heart personally. He's writing young Timothy. He could just as well be writing you or I. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, that is strong crying, prayers, general term for talking to God, intercessions, that is praying for others, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that would include presidents and governors, city council members, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If I read that right, he says, pray for all people for this reason. Remember your government. Remember your leaders. Number one, so that your life can be a peaceable life. Number two, because God loves all men and wants to save all people and will respond to your prayers when you lift them up. Somebody once said that prayer is the atmosphere of heaven. And some people are starving for air. Uh, some people pray only in a time of crisis. 
It's an emergency room kind of a prayer. They're driven to their knees because of a tragedy. Paul said, every time I remember you, I lift you up in prayer. I'm thanking God for you, and I'm interceding for you. A word about intercession. When you intercede for people, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to travel. Some of you think, oh, I've always wanted to travel overseas. Well, you can do it in prayer. You might not be able to buy a ticket and fly to China, but you could pray for Larry Chin, one of our missionaries in China. And you could affect his world and those circumstances around him by your prayers. You could then travel down to Mexico, pray for Carlos Casco and his family. He called me the other night in the middle of the night because of a coup attempt and a threat on his life. And so I had an opportunity about two or three in the morning to travel to Mexico and pray for him. Or you can travel over to Africa and pray for Jay and Sonny McLaughlin. There's a number of ways that this can be used, but a warning. Whenever you pray for others, it's the most difficult kind of praying. See, when you worship the Lord, it's easy because when you come and you focus upon God, it's exhilarating. David said, in your presence is fullness of joy. We get uplifted when we worship the Lord. And it's easy to pray for ourselves. The easiest thing for me to do is to be in touch with my needs, my wants. Me prayers are easy. I always know what I need and what I want, and I'm always bringing those before the Lord. But when I pray for other people, that's what the Bible calls laboring in prayers. That's where distractions are the easiest. Your needs are not upon yourself. Your focus is not upon God, but you're thinking of that other person, lifting them up before the Lord. It's easy to get distracted, to think of a thousand things that you need to do that day. And Paul called it laboring in prayers. In fact, he spoke of Epaphras as a bondservant of Christ, laboring fervently for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So with this church on the move, they were first of all, in verses 2 through 4, prayed for by Paul. Secondly, look at verse 4. They were picked by God. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. My parents did not pick me. They were stuck with me. When I came out of the womb, they had to live with me. They didn't choose me. It's exhilarating to think that God chose me, picked me, that I'm elected by God. This is a term, election, that is used six times in the New Testament, always speaking of God choosing human beings to bring to His love and to His grace. It's always God's action toward humans. Uh, I think that Jesus probably astonished His own disciples when after they decided to follow Him, He said, Psst, come here. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bring forth fruit. I'm sure Peter thought, wait a minute, I left my nets. But Jesus let them in on the secret that they were picked by Him, elected. Now, when did God choose you? Did He choose you when you were a good person? Did God choose you when you said, I now at this moment respond to your grace and I want to become a Christian, I decide to follow you? The Bible says in Ephesians, God chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. Before He spoke anything into existence, God had you in His mind. Boy, if that doesn't excite you, that doesn't light your fire, 
chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, It's a good thing God chose me before I was born. He probably never would have picked me after I was born. But that's not true. God knew all about you in advance, and He chose you anyway. You see, the idea of election is this. Salvation didn't begin with you. It began with God. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father which has sent me draw him. The Father must draw you to him. Preaching doesn't save a person. The best message in the world can never save an individual. Election must activate that person's heart and must be combined with that message where God draws that person to Him. And He might use a person, He might use a track, He might use a message, but it's that election of God that draws. It's sort of like throwing a rope to a drowning man. The rope doesn't save the person. There has to be somebody on the other side of that rope drawing him to the shore. Two elements are needed. The drawing power of the rescuer and the grabbing a hold of that rope of the victim. And so who gets the credit for your salvation? You? No, God does. You say, yeah, but I grabbed the rope. Ooh. Wow. Here you are drowning. Wow. You grabbed the rope. He threw the rope to you and then pulled you in. That's election. A lot of people have problems with this. I have had discussions, and i got to admit, I don't completely understand the idea of God choosing me in advance. My mind is too small to comprehend the vastness of God Almighty before creating the world choosing me to be saved. It frustrates many people. It excites others. I have learned not to really argue with it. I'm just glad he picked me. I think that that's the response we ought to have. Well, how does it work? I don't know. I'm just glad he picked me and that I'm on his team. Theologians have discussed this for years. The real issue is an attribute that God has that you and I really have tough time relating with, and that's the attribute of foreknowledge, which means God knows everything in advance, even the response of the hearts of all men. Now, you and I can't relate to that. We don't have foreknowledge. Do you know what's going to happen? Everything that's going to happen to you this week? Oh, you might have it on your calendar. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know who's going to win the Super Bowl? You say, yeah, I know. I got money on it. But you don't know. But God does know. And Peter said, God has chosen us according to his foreknowledge. It's a rerun to him. He's seen it all. The psalmist said, we live our life as a tale that has been told. And God knows the heart and the response of all people, and he makes his choice. One of the best analogies, though not perfect, is the analogy of approaching the door of heaven. And on the door on the front side it says, Whosoever will, let him come. And so you decide, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to open the door. I choose to walk in and be saved, to give my life to Jesus Christ. It's my choice. As soon as you walk in the door, it slams behind you. You look in front of you and there's a table that is set and your name is placed neatly on a little plaque and you wonder, What's my name doing on this table? How'd they know I was going to be here? I made the choice. 
As soon as you turn around, you read the other side of the door that says chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You chose, but in advance, God knew that you would choose. He had foreknowledge, and he chose you from the foundations of the world. You say, that's not fair. The fair that God would, why? Doesn't God have the ability to choose? You do. Well, maybe God didn't choose me. That's not fair. What if I want to go to heaven? Maybe God didn't choose me. Hey, I can prove that God chose you. Just accept Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, and you will find that God chose you. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, maybe He didn't choose you then. (laughs) Well, it's not fair. Well, then accept Him, and you'll find that He did choose you. God's election never bars a person from coming to heaven. He said, whosoever will, let him come. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And that's your choice. Okay, I choose. It's my choice. I'm going to follow Jesus. You'll find out that you were already chosen. Notice the word in verse 4, knowing. It's very important. He says, knowing, beloved brethren, that you are elected by God. Paul writes this letter to them. There's one thing I know for certain, and that is that God has picked you to be saved. Those are strong words. In fact, they fly right in the face of what many people say. Well, you can never know salvation in another person. You don't have the right to say, I know for certain that that person is a Christian. You can't judge a person. You can never pass judgment on their eternal state. But Paul says, we know that God picked you. The word is ido, or as comes from the word ido or oida in Greek, which means to perceive with the eyes, to take in certain information, and to pass a judgment, and to be certain based upon that information. And it relates back to verse 3. We know that you are picked by God because we see it in your life, by the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. What you are producing in your lives shows that you have been picked by God in advance. You might put it this way. Whoever the Lord chooses, He changes. And there's evidence of His choice by the changes that have occurred. Well, let's look at that. Let's look at verse 3 now. They were productive in their relationship with God. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. There are three virtues that Paul brings up. Faith, hope, and love. It's sort of an apostolic shorthand for this is true Christianity. Here are the virtues, and when you see them in any life, you know that there is an authentic believer. It's something that Paul uses many times. In fact, if you look over at chapter 5 of the same book, and you notice verse 8, he said, But let those who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He expands upon these virtues in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now here's what I want to bring home to our hearts about these three things this morning. These are not abstract virtues. These are not elements that God intended philosophers and theologians to discuss between themselves or for people to put on greeting cards one to another. As much as productive, 
fruit. These things have concrete results in the life of any person. Faith, hope, and love. Uh, let me read this verse to you in the New International Version, in case you don't have one this morning. It puts it a little more clearly than the one that we've selected. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the order. It's faith first, love second, hope third. It's because that's how they naturally flow. You be, always begin with faith. You can't do anything until you believe in Jesus Christ. And your faith in Him is the beginning. That rests on a past certainty. He died on the cross for me. I didn't see it, but I believe in it. Secondly, love works in the present, and it flows as a fruit of faith. Thirdly, hope draws me to the future. So I have past, present, and future as I hope and I wait in the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, in verse 3, your work of faith or work produced by faith. Saving faith, faith that is genuine Christian faith, is productive. It works. It involves the whole person. It's not an emotional feeling or a sentimental feeling. It's something that produces a life response. It's what sportsmen call the follow-through. If you believe it, you will do it. As Nike put it, just do it. But you can't just do it. You have to believe first. And if you believe, works will follow. Eighty-five percent of Americans say that they are Christians. A poll was conducted asking them, what is a Christian? What does it mean? Define that term. Twenty-two percent said they really don't know. I'm a Christian. What does it mean? I don't know. But I am one. 21% said it's to live differently from others. 14% said to be a Christian means I believe in God. Of course, James said, whoopee. Even the devils believe in God and they tremble. They're not saved. The poll goes on to say 11% of Americans say to be a Christian means to go to church and to be a religious person. 10% said it's just to be good. But John wrote in the Bible, if a person says, I have fellowship with God, but he walks in darkness, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. For faith to be true faith, it must produce something, not perfection, but certainly it will manifest itself. James agrees with this. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You might put it this way. If your religion, whatever it is, hasn't changed you, it's time to change your religion. And of course, Jesus Christ is not a religion. He's a person, risen from the dead. And when you accept Him and have faith in Him, it produces that work of faith. Second on the list, labor of love. Or again, as the NIV puts it, your labor prompted by love. This means toilsome action that love produces when the going gets tough. You might put it this way. When the going gets tough, the tough keep loving. It's a labor of love. One of the earmarks of a true Christian is that he loves. 
One of the earmarks of the world apart from Christ is they are self-centered. You know, it's interesting to me to follow the uh, changes, the sort of evolution in the media. In the 1950s, the magazine was Life, and then the big popular magazine years later in the uh, 70s was People, and then it uh, was Us magazine, and now Self magazine. The next magazine to come out will be I. But Jesus said, all men will know you're my disciples by the fact that you will love one another. Christian love is sometimes laborious, right? Is love always a sentimental, romantic feeling? No, it's tough. Labor here is kapos, which means toil to the point of exhaustion because you love. Let me give you an example. A 36-year-old mother of three children was discovered to be in the latter stages of terminal cancer. The first physician she went to said, you don't have much time. My recommendation, you go to Acapulco and live it up. I mean, you have fun. This is your last hoopla. Give it all you've got. She said, I want a second opinion. Good choice. Her second doctor offered her two to four years with grueling side effects of chemotherapy, medicine. It would be very painful. But he said, I think I can keep you alive that long. That was a tough choice for her to make, and she made her choice based upon the love that she had for those three little kids. She wrote him this letter. I have chosen to survive for you. This has some horrible costs, including pain, loss of my good humor, and moods that I will not be able to control. But I must try this. If only on the outside chance that I might live one minute longer, and that minute could be the one minute that you might need me when no one else will do. And for this I intend to struggle tooth and nail, so help me God. That is labor of love. That is loving when you're taking the course that's the most difficult to take. But Paul sees this in the Thessalonians. You've got a faith that produces work. You've got a love that labors to love one another when it's not easy. And finally, the patience of hope in verse 3. Or as some of your versions say, endurance that is prompted or promoted, produced by hope. The word uh, patience or endurance means to remain under a load and to stay the course when it's tough. What's he talking about? Persecution. As soon as this church was born, they were persecuted. And the thing that kept them going was the hope that Jesus Christ would return. They had their eyes fixed upon the future. And folks, the hope of heaven is one of the greatest incentives to present godly living. I hear people say, oh, you're so concerned about the coming of Jesus Christ. No, we're not. We're not looking for the coming of Christ, but the Christ who is coming. It's when we see Him face to face and the world will be made right. The evil will be judged. The good will be rewarded. And all of this persecution will cease. John said, whoever has this hope of the second coming of Christ in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It's a motivating, motivating and a purifying force. So the patience of hope or the unswerving constancy. Now what about you? 
Where do you fit into all this? Well, simply this. If you've been picked by God, there's proof in your life. If your faith, what you say you believe in, doesn't produce some kind of change in your life, good works, godly works, you're not saved by them, but your faith will produce them, or love for the brothers, or looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, something is wrong. You might be one of those people who has their name on a church roster. But it's better to have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thomas Akempis in the 13th century said, It is preferable to have the whole world against you than Jesus offended with you. That's good wisdom. It sort of boils things down, doesn't it? You know, it's nice to be liked by people and pat on the back by people, but I'd rather have the world against me and Jesus for me than the whole world saying, Hey, we love you. You're great. And have Jesus at enmity with me. A church on the move, picked by God, prayed for by Paul, and proven to be believers by a work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope.